Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah the Almighty, the most gracious, the most merciful, uh, peace be upon everyone. Welcome to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam uh, South London Studios. It's Monday, the 13th of November, and uh, we are beginning our show, and uh, in the beginning, as always, uh, we'll let you know the topics. So today, we will be discussing uh, uh, one very important topic, which is the NHS, and uh, today, we'll look at the aspect of um, diabetic eye screening, and how uh, that is changing in the NHS there has been some changes we'll be looking into this and speaking to some experts and some guests about this uh, as well the second segment which we uh, usually start around uh, quarter past eight is about bullying Uh, as you know today marks uh, the first day of the anti-bullying week and uh, we will be discussing about bullying or rather anti-bullying and also be speaking uh, with some guests um, on, on, on this issue uh, um, uh, today uh, we have a, uh, myself, Osman Manan and uh, Imam Nabil Bhatti with me and also Daniel Zia um, with the three of us today, hopefully. Um, so how, how are you today, Nabil? Assalamu Alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah, I'm well. Um, it's been a busy week um, regarding work and everything and I hope for our listeners as well. Um, I hope they had a fantastic weekend with their families and friends and I hope they have a weekend I hope they have the following week um, should be also busy for them and I hope they're well yes uh, hopefully um, I, if if you just quickly go through the weather first um, it's getting slightly warmer I see uh, even this morning it wasn't that chilly uh, yes. as it's it's been lately uh, yes. today um, it might rain a little bit later on the day, but uh, overall it's it's looking quite good. It will be a sunny day after ten o'clock, uh, and uh, in the in the coming few days, uh, the rain will persist. It will keep raining, but uh, the temperatures are going up slightly. Um, so we're looking at uh, maybe thirteen, fourteen, fifteen degrees Celsius during the day, uh, which is better than recently has been. I think below ten or even all the way down to five as well. Definitely, definitely. Um, I think during the week it's just. Um, we should make sure that even even if it does it does get cold suddenly during the day as well so make sure that everyone mm-hmm. is warm and you know taking their medicine um, and keeping themselves well yeah this is the crucial time with, with you know the weather changes people get sick um, it's already started <laughs> a lot of people get sick a lot I did feel it this morning a bit as well yeah it's the, the, the morning sickness is the worst definitely, definitely. Um, yeah well, anyways, uh, so um, as usual, we'll start off uh, with with the papers. Uh, we'll go through the through the uh, newspapers. What the newspaper headlines are saying for today, and I'll just uh, read some out. And after that, we will be discussing uh, some other news segments as well. 
So the Daily Mirror focuses on the position of Home Secretary, Suela Beverman. Uh, it pictures her at the um, Senatov on uh, Sunday, 24 hours after Armistice Day violence. Her words helped to incite. Its headline asks, Have You No Shame? Turning to the coming week, the Daily Express has another question. Will Suela survive PM's reshuffle? The paper reports Ms. Beverman is... Ms. Braverman is uh, clinging on uh, onto her job amid speculation about an imminent reshuffle following her controversial comments on policing and protest. The Daily Mail's headline reads, Suela comes out fighting as it reports on the Home Secretary accusing pro-Palestinian marchers of polluting the streets. It says the movie is defying critics who want her sacked. The time splashes on a slightly different angle. Following the sentences, following, sorry, following the scenes at demonstrations on Armistice Weekend, arrest uh, anti-Semitic yobs now, Sunak will tell Met, is the paper's headline. It reports on possible new laws the Prime Minister is considering as part of a crackdown on protest. The Daily Telegraph picks up on a similar theme as it too highlights the planned toughening of laws to prevent protests that pollute streets its front page headline reads braverman the hate marches must end the sun also reports uh, on planned new laws to protect remembrance the paper says clamoring on uh, state uh, statues and using fireworks at protests will become illegal never again its headline reads Metro, uh, uh, Metro pictures the Princess of Wales on Remembrance Sunday underneath a picture of other members of the royal family. Tears for the Fallen, its headline reads, as it looks beyond the politics and weekend unrest. Elsewhere, the eye leads on the Prime Minister and Chancellor apparently considering tax reductions before Christmas cuts to the inheritance tax and stamp duty could be on the agenda in a bid to appease arrestive conservative MPs and narrow polling gap with Labour. The paper reports under the headline Hunt considers pre-Christmas tax cuts to lift Tory gloom. The Guardian splashes on a different story reporting that thousands of babies and toddlers are being admitted to hospital in England each year with lung conditions linked to where they live. The paper, uh, the paper's headline reads mold, mold and squalid um, housing making NHS crisis worse. The Financial Times splashes on U.S. officials um, telling their Israeli counterparts to avoid bombing hospitals amid alarm at dire conditions for patients. And The Sun uh, and uh, The Daily Star splashes on weather uh, and hay fever saying it's uh, the perfect storm. And the, perp- the paper suggests that hay fever season is not over and predicts up to 10 days of non-stop rain for the UK with 500 mild tempests on the way so that was a a, a quick overview of the papers we'll take a short break and then we will be going uh, through some other news and we'll be discussing the papers as well so stay with us listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day.
ിസ്ഫലിങ്ങ് Um, Gaza and Israel um, sure. just to give a life update this is a very short update on what's happening right now right. so the WHO organization who says that Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza city is not functioning as a hospital anymore um, they, they, they are saying constant gunfire and bombings in the area has exhibited and that already critical that already critical circumstances Gaza's Hamas run health ministry says that at least 2300 people are still inside Al-Shifa. Um doctors say they are they say that they fear the remaining 36 newborn babies needing intensive care treatment may die. Israel says Hamas has command center under Al-Shifa which Hamas denies but insists it is not hitting the hospital during fighting. Meanwhile, the U.S. has carried out airstrikes on two Iranian bases in Syria following the attacks against military personnel in Syria and Iraq. Israel began striking Gaza after the Hamas attacks on 7th October, which saw 1,200 people killed and more than 200 taken hostage. The Hamas-run mil- health ministry says more than 11,000 people have been killed in Gaza since, of whom more than 4,500 people uh, were children. Um, just following that Macron just following that Macron has also stated that Israel must stop killing babies and women in Gaza um, as the French president has told the BBC in an exclusive interview um, he said that there was no justification for the bombing and saying a ceasefire would benefit Israel by recognizing Israel's right to protect itself he continues to say that we do urge them to stop this bombing in Gaza um which he constantly said during his interview with the BBC Thank you for that and yeah staying with uh, with Gaza actually so the Guardian reports uh, this morning that two major hospitals in northern Gaza have closed to new patients amid Israeli airstrikes and heavy fighting around both facilities as medical staff were left without oxygen medical supplies or fuel to power incubators intense clashes are continuing around Gaza's biggest hospital al-shifa and another major facility al-quds as israel presses its offensive against hamas in the territory the world health organization who said on sunday that it had managed to contact 
Al-Shifa after three days without electricity, water and functioning internet and that hospital is not functioning as a hospital anymore. The WHO, the WHO Director General Tedros, um, Tedros Adhanom said on X formerly Twitter, the constant gunfire and bombings in the area have exacerbated the already critical circumstances. Tragically, the number of patient fatalities has increased significantly. The world cannot stand silent while hospitals, which should be safe havens, are transformed into scenes of death, devastation and despair. Joko Widodo, the president of Indonesia, which is home to the world's largest Muslim population, also called for a ceasefire. Speaking in Riyadh ahead of meeting with Joe Biden in Washington on Monday, Widodo said a ceasefire must be implemented soon. We also must accelerate and increase the amount of humanitarian aid and we must begin peace negotiations. Israeli forces appear close to reaching many of their objectives in Gaza, sweeping across a swath of northern sector of the territory which is seen as Hamas's stronghold, though the organization's top leaders seem to have escaped the military onslaught so far. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said Hamas's attacks on Israel, in which the militant group killed 1,200 people, mostly civilians, did not justify the collective punishment of Palestinians. You cannot use the horrific things that Hamas did as a, result, as a reason for collective punishment of the Palestinian people, he told CNN. Israel pre- Israel's president Itzhak Herzog has denied that Israeli forces have targeted the Al-Shifa hospital and claimed that everything is operating at the site. Israel said doctors, patients and thousands of evacuees have taken refuge at hospital in northern Gaza and must leave. Um, Hamas denies using hospital this way. Medical staff say patients could die if they are moved and patients and Palestinian officials say Israeli fire makes it dangerous for others to leave. As the war enter, enters its sixth week, pressure is growing on Israel to agree to ceasefire. Ceasefires allies such as the US and France express growing concern at the death toll since the Israeli offensive was launched. On Sunday, however, the German Chancellor struck a different note saying he did not think a ceasefire or a long pause would be right. That would mean ultimately that Israel leaves Hamas the possibility of recovering and obtaining new missiles. The EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell said that fighting in Gaza was severely impacting the hospital and taking a horrific toll on civilians and medical staff. He condemned Hamas for using hospitals and civilians as human shields um, according to what he said and urged Israel to show maximum restraint. The Hamas-run health ministry said on Friday that 11,078 people have been killed in air and artillery strikes since the Israeli offensive began in Gaza, about 40% of them children, and that 13 Palestinians were killed in an airstrike on a house in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza on Sunday. The death toll has not been updated since then. Mohammed Zakut, the director of hospitals in Gaza, said on Sunday because medics were unable to reach areas hit by Israeli bombardment. The UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs confirmed this in its update on Sunday writing on 12th November for the second consecutive day following the collapse of services and communications hospitals in the Northern Ministry of Health in Gaza did not update casualty figures. It added that three nurses had reportedly been killed at Al-Shifa and that 10 patients and two babies had died since the power outage, while 36 more babies were at risk of dying 
because of the lack of power for incubators. So yeah, pretty heart-wrenching stuff um, uh, there, absolutely, currently happening in Gaza. And um, yeah, thoughts and prayers with all those people who are um, unfortunately on the uh, the wrong side uh, <coughs> of the of the gun. Right. Um, yeah. Similarly, there is. Um, I mean, it's, I think the war is spreading. It's not just Gaza and Israel in, uh, anymore. Um, Hezbollah has stepped in. Uh, they have uh, attacked the north of Israel as well. Mm. Uh, Eighteen Israelis have been injured from the Hezbollah missile strikes on uh, on the border, and tensions are rising there as well. Um, it, Hezbollah they, they have been praised by the Lebanon Prime Minister as well for their patriotism, and uh, it looks like uh, there is also reports of uh, bombings and uh, airstrikes in Syria in Damascus uh, and also in Iraq mm. uh, and uh, it's uh, not yet confirmed who these who is launching these attacks or why mm. uh, why they're happening if they are in, in relation to the Israel-Palestine war but we see that this, the, the, the war is kind of spreading um, more and uh, Hezbollah yeah. stepped in officially mm. um, even the Lebanon Prime Minister said that uh, they are prepared for a they have a three-month contingency plan in the event of a full war breaking out involving Lebanon. So they are preparing for war, and I think they are ready for war now. Mm. Um, and it's just not, it's just going to get worse. Um, exactly, which is very unfortunate, and it reminds me of uh, what His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Masoodam, the current caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, uh, said at the very beginning of this crisis when Israel launched uh, its attack, that... Um, that this is not going to stop, that this is not going to end here. It, uh, it's unfortunately, mm. and it does look like, as if, um, as you said, that it's already spreading. There were already people, other analysts as well, were talking about risks of uh, contagion, risk of uh, war spreading, Hezbollah stepping in, and unfortunately, uh, that already seems to be happening this morning. Or I mean, it's also in the news that... Uh, U.S. has struck um, uh, some some bases in Syria, so yeah, so it's 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 gone to um, uh, to Lebanon and Syria, and then you know it's um, mm. uh, if Iran steps in, then it's a it's an all-out sort of Middle East war, and uh, that's I, I don't think a scenario that anybody would uh, would like because that will impact uh, the whole world. I think um, it would be a folly to think that this is a war or, or in a land far, far away and it doesn't affect us. Um, this is, if, if it continues to spread, then, which it is at the moment, and that seems to be the direction of travel, very unfortunately so, then it will begin to affect the rest of the world, mm -hmm. uh, Europe including. And I think people are also losing their minds. And they're, they are going on marches and protests over little things and uh, which are not little I mean by if there is one one uh, incident they will start marching like hey, uh, the example which uh, Nabil mentioned in uh, President Macron in uh, Paris uh, all he said is I'll quote him this is from uh, the Telegraph so that these babies these ladies these pe old people are bombed and killed so there's no reason for that and no legitimacy so we do urge Israel to stop yeah, which is a very hundred thousand people yeah. marched out, uh, um, you know, uh, chanting anti-Semitism and yeah, I think that's a, this cancelling culture. Unfortunately, um, 
uh, you know, is 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 very unfortunate that uh, that's emerging. I mean, anybody who says who criticizes Israeli government, anybody who criticizes uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, is immediately branded as an anti-Semite, which is absolutely, which is uh, un- which is very unfortunate. Uh, and and you know, you you see that in other discussions as well. Um, what our Home Minister over here, as well, Abravaman, said. Of, few days ago about the hate march um, you know people have um, many people have expressed outrage on on those remarks but some people have actually said that this is that people who are opposing this is actually misogyny so I mm. mean <laughs> so it's uh, okay. you know you, 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 this cancelling culture this uh, you know suddenly equating one thing with the other or bringing something mm-hmm. else which which just shuts the uh, debate down I think is very undemocratic and very unhealthy unfortunately mm. for uh, for the health of society. And um, again, you know, I'll go back to what His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Masood Ahmed has been saying, may Allah be his helper, that uh, these are very, very testing and trying times. And unless people learn and learn quickly, the world is actually at a, at a precipice of a disaster. Yes, exactly. I'd just like to mention a narration of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He said that uh, there are certain people, certain groups of uh, certain types of people their prayers never unanswered by God Almighty mm. and one of those people or one of those groups is is uh, a people who is being oppressed mm. um, and that is uh, perfectly applicable on the Palestinian people yeah. um, also on, on other nations which are being or other groups which are being oppressed and this is the time for prayer I mean this is what the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him so, has said so. that a person who is being oppressed and he cries out to God God will not you know, face away from him. He will never uh, not answer his prayer. Mm. He might have his own way of answering the prayer, but the prayer will be heard. So we, uh, I also urge all the Palestinians who are listening and all other people as well, that as His Holiness has repeatedly mentioned, yes. that our greatest weapon here is prayer. Mm. If we don't pray for these people, our protests are useless. Mm. Our, um, I don't writing to the prime ministers is useless. Mm. Anything else is useless if we're not praying because the ultimate power is with God Almighty yeah. I mean if, if if someone's gonna save Palestine it's gonna be God it's not gonna be America or UK or any other country correct absolutely 100% I think you've uh, um, you've hit the nail on his head and yeah it's it's the prayers and, and they need our prayers and um, they need their prayers uh, and I think the world need uh, needs prayers as well for its own well-being um, uh, as well as for a few for its future right um we are coming up uh, to the um, uh, to the uh, to the first segment, and just a reminder of uh, what that segment is about. So the first segment, uh, which we shall, uh, which we shall start uh, in about five minutes' time, is about NHS England and NHS England extending diabetic eye screening. Uh, and we shall talk to um, a few guests uh, on that topic. And then around 8.15 a.m., we shall talk about bullying in the workplace. Uh, this, as some of you may know, is the anti-bullying week. Um, so we shall uh, put a spotlight on that discussion and uh, start that topic at around 8.15. And again, we've got a packed sh- uh, show. Please uh, do uh, stay tuned. Uh, we will be live until 9 a.m. And please do contribute towards the show. This is a live show. So please um, do call in at 0208-687-7878. The number once again is 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall now take a very quick break and we'll come back 
we will delve right into the first topic, which is about NHS England and diabetic eye screening. Do stay tuned. Listening to the Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant, by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. Al-Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see Him. He is Al-Latif, He is unseen and illuminates the person He reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for Him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek Him and raises prophets to be their guide to Him. His light is manifested through His Prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the Prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, disseminated this light the most. For it was He who had the most perfect perception of God and it was He who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of his perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah, 
on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of his servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his Ummah as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is he who fills hearts with his magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif? Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. You're listening to Dani Alzea, Imam Usman Manan, and Imam Bhatti live from the South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We're about to delve into the first topic, which is about NHS England extending diabetic eye screening. So what is um, uh, this particular story about? So uh, diabetic diabetic retinopathy is the leading cause of blindness among the working population. A study delineated in the independent uncovers the risk associated with extending the diabetic eye screening interval from one to two years, a measure aimed at alleviating the pressure on NHS resources and minimizing inconvenience for low-risk diabetic individuals. So, uh, diabetic retinopathy is a complication of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. The condition occurs as a result of high blood pressure levels damaging blood vessels in the back of the eye, which is called the retina. This condition can lead to blindness if left untreated and is currently one of the most common causes of blindness in the working population. The condition can affect anyone with diabetes, but certain factors may put you at high risk, such as having persistently high blood pressure, high blood cholesterol, high blood sugar levels if you're pregnant or if you are of Asian or African heritage. In the early stages of the uh, problem, there are no obvious obvious symptoms, but at later stages, the following symptoms may be experienced. Sudden vision loss, floaters in your vision, patchy or blurry, or blurry vision, eye pain and redness, and difficulty seeing in the dark. If you do experience any of these symptoms, it is vital that you seek support from your GP or a diabetic care team. Let's now go straight to our first guest for this segment, Mr. Rafiq Bhatti, who um, qualified as, uh, in 2009, is a locum optometrist who works in various locations, including high street practices, care homes, as well as prisons. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Welcome, Islam. Yeah, thank you for having me. No, thank you. The pleasure is all ours. So, um, so tell us about this condition a little bit um, for those of us, uh, including myself, who, who 
you know who've heard this for the for the first time really uh, diabetic retinopathy what 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 is this um uh, how is it only related to diabetes or can it occur um or happen otherwise as well yes um, so diabetes essentially um, is, is in the most way possible i guess is um, we have obviously the concept of uh, in, you've got two types, right? Type 1 and type 2 as you guys said earlier right. um, but in type 1 diabetes essentially you've got a concept where your body can't make insulin and insulin is required to kind of break down um, all these food products, carbohydrates and the uh, glucose that comes into your body um, type 2 is effectively a case where the insulin that you do have doesn't work that effectively where you can't produce enough of it and again there's a malfunction but essentially, that, that's one side of the coin. The main thing, going back to your question, what that does to the eyes, etc. So the, the, generally speaking, the blood vessels inside the eye, obviously have blood vessels all over the body. The blood vessels in the eye, they become thinner and they, they become more susceptible to uh, the leakage of, of blood and also the concept of potentially new blood vessels being made to counter that. And this is where you get these little dots of blood, the little blots of blood, um, inside the back of the eye, and this is what we call retinopathy, and it is mainly associated with diabetes. And uh, it can basically be the start of uh, a big can of worms, I guess, is better to describe that bit. Okay, Zakla, um, thank you for that. Um, my, my question to you is that, um, for a listener out there, what role does your profession play, um, and how important is it to get these tests done? Yeah, so, I mean, essentially, it's very important, I guess. Um, there's, there's two types of patients, right? You'll get the one type that has already been diagnosed by the GP or by another screening process. So all we're doing essentially is managing it. And if we're seeing changes in the back of the eye, then we're notifying the GP or giving them advice based on that. And mm. secondly, this is where I think we come more into play is where you do get the typical type of patient who just deals with things, right? So, you know, this hurts or that's not great. And they just think, well, whatever, who cares? And they so happen to go for an eye test and just because there's, you know, someone's either advised them or you've got a nagging wife or something, you know, not being sexist or anything, and they've pushed them <laughs> to go and they've turned up for an eye test. And in doing so, we found changes in the back of the eye that would spell out diabetes. And then, you know, that, that could be the case where you could essentially say this person had this for the last five, six years without any diagnosis. And so it is very important in that respect to kind of potentially diagnosed to find and to eradicate as such. Um, yeah, uh, I also have a question for you. Um, so is this um, uh, only applicable to diabetic patients or can anyone else also um, develop this condition? So yeah, retinopathy essentially is mainly linked to diabetes. You can have a concept where you can have a hypertensive retinopathy as well. So somebody that has high blood pressure issues as well, mm -hmm. they can also have leakage of blood vessels essentially. But fundamentally, the the reason happens differently for each. So in diabetes, again, because of the changes in the blood vessels, you get leakage of blood, you get leakage of blood, etc. in the back of the eye. You can also get swelling in the back of the eye, something called macular edema, which has a complete different type of uh, uh, fixing process as such but when it comes to the other concept like I was saying with the uh, high blood pressure mm -hmm. or hypersensitive uh, um, hypertension sorry the the leakage there happens due to again more pressure on the system as opposed to changes in the blood vessel walling so it's uh, two different biodynamics but essentially you can kind of get the same result but again with diabetes it's far far more worse as such 
but it comes down to um, you know how far it could go and and and, and the things that one needs to do to rectify it. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, this is this is uh, because uh, because of the increased glucose in the body, uh, blood sugar. You said, yeah, the blood sugar, the, the body's lack of uh, ability to maintain it with its own insulin production. Okay. And again, you know, there's so many contraindications that would cause that to happen, including you know people's genetics and overweight and uh, you know lifestyle and food intake and you know this goes on really. In your personal, no, I wouldn't say personal, but in your professional opinion, what do you think regarding the recent changes in the retinal screening recall time? I can understand them. I can also understand why there could be a bit, bit of a um, complaint side of things from certain people that, you know, what's happening here? Is NHS trying to save money, you know, by prolonging this? I see so many patients that are on a, on a diabetic screening on an annual basis, and yeah a vast majority of them there's actually nothing wrong with them right so there's they'll go for these mm-hmm. checks and they've been told it's fine year on year so it kind of makes sense with the you know the nhs is saying right if you're fine for two years in a row well then what we'll do is we'll change you to a two-year two-year recall as opposed to every year and and there's a difference between that person and somebody that's actually got problems that you would effectively see changes in the back of the eye and as long as they're having eye tests done as well so you know one year you know, if it's, if it's over two years, one year they have an eye test, one year they have a screening thing done, it kind of covers each other up, you know, in the sense that if if there is an issue over a year, it'll get picked up for in, in a general eye test, and mm-hmm. therefore it's quite imperative to have an eye test done as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, it, um, is there any research to suggest that more um, patients of a certain age group are affected than others who are diabetic? Um, again, yes, with age, generally speaking, your pro- probability, possibility does increase. Um, again, stats-wise, there are certain things I don't have in my hand, but effectively speaking, yeah, you're... Well, one thing I think is very important for, for the general public to know when it comes to diabetes, right, is that diabetes is kind of the leading cause of blindness in the working population from, like, mm-hmm. age 20 to 74. So you get all these other array of problems later on in life which are related to degeneration and you know, um, so macular problems, etc. But from that working class age group, from 20 to 74, you know, it, that seems to be the leading cause. And this is throughout the world, by the way, so not just linked to just UK. Mm. Um, because there are like over 100 million people in the world with diabetic retinopathy. Um, but again, yes, as age progresses, the likelihood of this increases more so. And that's due to the body malfunctioning occurring as well as people's, you know, dietary changes, like lack of exercises, etc. as well as time goes on. And is it a degenerative condition? It's like uh, once it starts, then there is no stopping it? No. So this is the thing. It can, you've got two different types as well beyond that. I mean, it gets complicated beyond that as well. But essentially, let's take, for example, somebody that's got early changes of uh, what we call background diabetic retinopathy. So diabetic retinopathy starts with just background changes. It feels like changes in the back of the eye and when i mean changes i mean little you know lots and dots of blood as we would call it oh. which sounds terrible but essentially if a person rectifies their lifestyle and by that i mean again exercise food intake etc and they they can that that can go away itself so that, that can be reabsorbed back into the body without any changes so when you get early changes in the eye we wouldn't go down the route of treatment straight away um, but then essentially if that keeps worsening 
because the person doesn't take into account any changes that they should be going through, then yeah, you, you, the question, the, the answer to your question is yeah, effectively that will become worse and that will need treatment. And the treatment itself isn't something which reverts everything back to normal. It kind of stops that there as opposed to it getting worse. And what you've lost in terms of vision is what you've lost. And that's the sad thing about it. Right, yeah. <clears throat> Excellent. Thank you very much, Rafiq Pati, for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, that was um, a very insightful. Uh, thank you very much. Have a lovely day and the rest of the week. Peace be with you. Walaikum assalam. So that was uh, Mr. Rafiq Bhatti, who is um, a locum optometrist um, working here in the UK. Let me now go straight to our next guest uh, for the segment, uh, Ms. Heather Quarkendale, who is a retired ophthalmic nurse with 15 years of experience working in the diabetic retinal screening service. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Excellent. Uh, no, it's a pleasure to speak to you. So, uh, from your experience, uh, how does uh, this condition, diabetic retinopathy, actually impact the lives of uh, diabetic patients? Well, I think um, it's often uh, with, with people of di- uh, early diagnosis of, of diabetes, it's the thing that they worry most about. And I think sight loss at any age, whether it's mild or severe, you know, is 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 is, 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 a, is a tragedy. Um, people, it affects every part of their life and not only the person themselves, it affects their family, friends, it can impact on work, mental health um, and espe- especially for something that particularly diabetic retinopathy can be prevented, mostly prevented, uh, preventable disease. Yeah. So it's a huge impact. And I think as well with diabetes, um, Unlike some other disorders, it's often caught accidentally. People go for, you know, um, checkups, a routine checkup, or they have a minor um, operation and the assessment brings it up. So it often comes out of the blue. And I think people are given such an enormous amount of, of information. It is quite overwhelming, uh, and especially there's a, there's a, an abstract element to it. It's if you don't do this and you don't do that, you might get ill. Things might happen in so many years' time. And I think one of the opportunities that diabetic retinal screening can do is people often get their appointment quite early on after they're diagnosed. They come to us and we can show them a picture of the of the, the, the back of the eye, and we can say these are the little vessels. That is your earlier guest was saying. You know, quite beautifully, mm. but I think you answered everything I, I was going to say. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, that it damages a tiny little vessels in you know, in your body. It's particularly in your eyes. There's fine vessels in your eyes and your kidneys, and and through the eye we can see actually into the body. It's the only place of the body you can actually see the little blood vessels and your tissue actually happening. Um, so it's it's a lovely visual thing to see that makes something quite abstract. It sort of brings it into reality so people understand that you know if their diabetes isn't very well controlled, their blood pressure isn't very well controlled, these are the vessels that, that can get damaged over time. So it's a sort of a, a little opportunity there that I think is quite unique with retinal screening and has done quite a lot of good over time. I think I was reading um, well recent uh, re- uh, I was just reading the other day that although it you know why retinal screening came into um, being as well because it was the most um, 
sort of blindness of the working age population. Mm-hmm. I believe it's it's second now um, to hereditary disease. So I think mm-hmm. you know retinal skin has played a big part in that. F- following to your answer there, um, you did mention that. Um, the patient or whoever the individual is who's affected by this accidentally discovers they're diagnosed mm. with diabetic. So for one, to actually recognise what the symptoms are, can you mention a few of them? Yes. Uh, the, and and the, the, the problem is with early diabetic um, damage to the eyes is there are no symptoms. Mm. That's you know that's the mo- that's why it's so important to attend your appointment to get screened. Um, I think in the past it was it was quite ad hoc. It was always part of the diabetes care, but some people would be seen by sort of different people. They'd be seen by an optometrist. They'd be seen by somebody in the clinic. And the retinal screening program when it sort of started proper around 2003 it was trying to get everybody everybody seen regularly um, for their eye care and to a certain standard as well so one person's um, diagnosis of it looking in one person's eye maybe a doctor maybe not it it was all quite different it wasn't standardized Mm -hmm. so I think you know we can get the quality assurance as well that's involved in the screening service so people are trained retinal screeners trained to see signs to do things all in a uniform way across across the board so everybody gets the same service um but yes it's it's any changes with your vision i think you know is is you must go and see your optician or your gp as i say in the early stages there are no signs that's why it's easy would it would it be sudden changes Mm. to your vision or is it Possibly, you know. yes, yes, but it it can be gradual. Uh, but any but any sudden loss, any sort of blurriness, any um, floaters in the eyes, etc. That can mean there's things going on at the back of the eye. Any changes at all, but certainly with retinal screening and certainly in the early stages, you don't you don't have any symptoms. I always think it's a little like somebody sort of sitting on the beach with their eyes closed. And they only know when the tide has come in when their feet are wet. <laughs> um, so it's, it was if they could see, they could see the tide coming in and get out of the way mm. early. So the screening is like an early, early warning sign. So if we see little signs of perhaps little changes in those blood vessels happening, we'd get you seen by the eye clinic, or, we, or mm. we'd bring you back a little bit sooner as well. You know? Can a can a regular optician notice this if you go to get eye test? Yes, yeah. Uh, one of the things we, we I, I, I retired from retinal, the Scottish, um, from Glasgow Retinal, uh, Glasgow and Clyde Retinal Screenings five years ago, but I do keep in touch with people. <laughs> but what we would do is we'd advise uh, patients to, we would see people every year, I believe it's two years now they see um, uh, people with no risk. But we would say in between, go and see your optician because we're looking for, I say, we're just looking for diabetic damage and we're looking at a very small part of your eye. The optician will look at all of your eye and check for other things as well and they can also see what we see. So always go, we sort of stagger it in between. So if you were coming to us every year, we'd say go to optician every year, but maybe in six months. So really you're getting your eyes checked every six months. Mm-hmm. So... so uh, y- there's a patient you found out that he has this uh, condition. What's the process? How do you treat it? Uh, well, the treatment, well, hopefully it would never get to treatment. Um, but we would, if we saw some damage in the eyes, 
and we thought it needed referral to the hospitalised service. Um, often, often it's just um, a case of getting your diabetes under control, or getting blood pressure under control, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. That that that's quite a big part of it. If treatment is needed, like there's laser, there is a laser treatment that can um, affect the the. the the, the macula sometimes there's swelling in the macula or it can um affect little the blood vessels to stop new blood vessels being um that, that, that start to grow mm-hmm. especially in type 1 people with type 1 diabetes especially you can get little blood vessels growing because the eye because the little vessels are being damaged the eye thinks it, it's not getting enough oxygen so it sends out messages saying grow new vessels grow new vessels but these little vessels grow again you wouldn't see them you wouldn't notice them until they, they, they start to bleed mm-hmm. and that's where the problem starts so if we saw anything like that that would be quite a, um, a, a quick referral other damage especially with type 2 diabetes, more to do with the macula, which is the centre of the eye, that can become slightly swollen and, and damaged. Mm-hmm. And again, we'd refer to that. But there are some injections um, into the eyes that can stop these blood vessels growing um, and things like that. But hopefully we'd never want it to get to that. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's the main thing. It's prevention, prevention, prevention. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the boring old thing of, you know, keeping your weight down, um, keep your blood sugar levels fairly steady most of the time you know just do the best you can blood pressure is a big part of it as well keeping blood pressure under control Mm -hmm. so the main focus that we push is is prevention okay uh but um sorry maybe i missed it but i didn't understand how the process of the screening works Um, ah yeah yes well what we what we do is is as soon as soon as people come on to alice as soon as people are diagnosed with diabetes um they get a letter inviting to come to retinal screening we would see them invite them in make sure all their details are correct we check their vision as well to see what their normal vision would be like mm-hmm. we give them an overall sort of um advice of what we're about to do so there are no surprises um we then take a photo of the eye and i don't know if people have been to the optician they put their chin on a little rest and we just said there'd be a bright flash um, mm-hmm. and it's an immediate photograph it's a digital photograph of the eye very tiny part of the eye but it's expanded uh, to you know to, it's magnified um, if we couldn't get a very good picture if we couldn't see into the eye very well we might put drops into the eye which is why we say don't drive if you're coming to an appointment okay um because it can cause your eyes to be blurry and i think mm-hmm. your insurance wouldn't cover you so just just be, just be aware of that that drops wear off in a couple of hours or so but certainly you shouldn't drive if your vision's blurry but what that does that the aperture the, the pupil in the eye it's a bit like a camera so the, the, the pupil the black part of your eye it expands you know, when it's dark to let more yeah. light in and it contracts when it's very uh, bright to, you know, prevent light getting in as much. But it, it, so it'll, op- it'll open that sort of a- a aperture, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can get a good photo there. Um, then, uh, certainly if it's, it's the person's first um, screen, we'll show them the photographs and explain uh, exactly what we're looking at to them. Mm-hmm. Then the photos go to be graded. Um, so if there's any changes present any little dots any little little bleeds any sort of um changes with the tissues that we see if there isn't anything to be concerned about uh, the patient will probably get a letter perhaps in 
a few a week week or so's time yeah. saying everything's fine come back in a year and again you know there are little you do get little changes in your eyes mm-hmm. um but uh, you know sorry to cut mm-hmm. you off it, it sounds like a just a just a normal eye test and uh, is is there any ah. specific difference between the screening and uh, a normal optician eye ah yes we're looking specifically so we're looking at the, the macula of the eye we we um enlarge it and we look at it in detail and we have graders we have a level one grader which actually at the moment certainly in scotland is, a, is an auto grader mm-hmm. that'll detect whether or not there's any changes a second level grader will look at those pictures and look for any problems at all that means there's some damage there but possibly not that we we'd want to bring back if there is some damage there some changes in the tissue that we think well it might need to be seen we could bring people back in six months so we can keep an eye on it if not we send it to our doctor who then looks at it and she will say yes it needs to be referred so it's very specific about diabetic mm-hmm. changes we don't want to send people to the hospital if they don't need to be seen so one of the things we do is again if there are changes around the macula it's a two-dimensional photograph so we can't see swelling so if we can see things that we think well they might be swelling there the vision's gone down we can see little um, lipids and little um, exudates and things. Yes. We simply put an OCT, which is then a three-dimensional photograph. So they mm-hmm. might be brought back for an OCT. Then we would return, yes, maybe there is some swelling there. Maybe it does need to be seen by the hospital team. So then they would be referred. So it's very specific for retinopathy. We do pick up other things as well. We can look at this, we can see glaucoma, but that's not really our remit. That's why it's important to go to the optician as well. But again, it's very standardised and it's very streamlined. So it's very, as I say, it's part of your diabetic care. Eye doctors look at it, you know, at the time as well, if necessary. So it's sort of fast-tracked as well. So it's, it's... it's it's quite honed system. There's been lots of changes in the in the in the years that I've worked there as well. So it's 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 very speedy and timely. Yeah, perfect. And Got it's listened to your GP. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is very insightful, very uh, detailed explanation as well. Uh, thank you, Miss uh, Cockindo, for your time. Thank as well. you very much. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And you too. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Peace be on you. Bye bye. So that was uh, Ms. Heather Corkindale, who is a retired ophthalmic nurse with 15 years of experience working in the diabetic retinal screening service and giving us a very, very detailed take on what this condition is all about, as well as uh, or how the screening is done, as well as how to um, to take care to ensure that it um, uh, it never affects you. Yeah, right. You also mentioned a lot of uh, ways yeah. to uh, you know keep your diabe- diabetes in yeah. control, which is a very important. Uh, I mean, taking care of your health in general um, is very important. Um, to, the main main thing she mentioned is um, take care of your weight, blood uh, pressure, your blood pressure, yeah. and uh, and these these two are like the main main things. Yeah, and, which, uh, which are the I think primary causes of diabetes. Uh, yes, in yes. The first place. So yeah, if you if you're able to avoid diabetes, mm. then uh, then. But that's type type two diabetes. Correct. Yeah. Okay, right. Um, we are now coming up uh, to the eight o'clock news. Uh, uh, reminder of uh, the two topics. Which also the topic that we are actually discussing right now is about uh, this eye condition. 
uh, called uh, retinal, um, uh, sorry, diabetic retin- retinopathy, if I can get that right. And um, and uh, in about uh, 20 minutes' time after the 8 o'clock news, we shall delve into the second topic, which is about uh, bullying. This is the anti-bullying week, as some of you may know. Uh, do stay tuned. We will take a short break and then the 8 o'clock news, and we will be back right after the news break. Thank you. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam states, Sin, which indeed is a poison, is born when a man is wanting in obedience to God and is empty of his love and his affectionate remembrance. The fate of a man whose heart has become cold to the love of God is like that of an uprooted tree, no longer capable of drawing the sap of life from the soil. As such, a tree gradually withers and dies. So like the dryness of the tree, sin overwhelms the heart. The remedy for this state of dryness, according to the law of nature, is of three types. Number one, love. Number two, istighfar, that is, seeking forgiveness of Allah. It literally means a desire to bury or to cover, reminding one that as long as the root of the tree is buried in the soil, it can hope to bring forth green foliage. Number three, the third remedy is tawbah, which means to turn towards God in all humility, drawing the sap of life and to bring oneself closer to Him, to break loose with the help of righteous deeds from the enveloping cover of sinfulness. Tawbah cannot be achieved merely by word of mouth. In fact, Tawbah can be perfected only with the help of righteous deeds. All acts of goodness are aimed at achieving perfection of Tawbah. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is Monday, the 13th of November 2023. The time is 8.02 a.m. And this morning we're talking about this eye condition called diabetic retinopathy. And um, 
We have been talking to a couple of guests uh, around what this condition is, how to prevent it, what sort of screening um, uh, is entailed. Um, let's now go to um, Dr. Louise Go, who we spoke earlier uh, with. Uh, Dr. Louise is a clinical lead for eye health optometry and low vision services for the Royal National Institute of Blind People. Let's listen in. The diabetic screening service um, has been long and well established and we know that it it, um, prevents sight loss. So what happens is when you are diagnosed with diabetes, your GP should automatically put you onto the list to be called to have your retinal eye screening appointment. And that's where they take a photograph of the inside of the eye and that's sent to... um, accredited graders at the hospital and they look to see if there's any signs of diabetic change in your eyes Um, and if there is then um, they will then decide how much of a risk there is to your sight um, and decide when you need to be seen and by who so for some people it's just a little bit of change and that's well within the normal range um, and that just requires to be monitored perhaps every six months every year Um, If there are more signs of change that could indicate that your eye condition is progressing to a level at which it needs treating, then you'll be called into the hospital to have more tests done and decide what kind of treatment you need. And usually that is um, laser treatment. Um, Sometimes um, if the middle of the back of the eye is affected, there may be some injection treatments that are required in order to protect your vision. So that's, that's that's how it should work and it works extremely well um, uh-huh. just recently there has been a review to um, how frequently people are seen so it used to be every year as a baseline minimum so everyone had to come in once a year to have their photographs uh, the, the, the retina photographed oh, okay. um, and just recently um, based on some evidence of work uh, of, of other um, Uh, services in the devolved nations they have decided that um, for some people that are very low risk of diabetic retinopathy it's um, it should be safe to widen that to every two years and and the the idea behind that is a very good one because it means that um, you're not having to have tests that you don't need and you're also um, freeing up appointment slots for people who really do need those appointments so, um, so the basis of it is very good. Um, the the idea is is sensible from everyone's perspective, um, and we do know that there are certain groups of people that are more at risk. So we know that during pregnancy, people with type one diabetes are more at risk of progression of eye condition of the eye condition associated with diabetes. And as you get older, you become more at risk. And also people whose um, diabetes is, and their blood pressure is not very well controlled, they're more at risk. So we know that they definitely need to be seen more frequently um, than every two years, that they should be at least on a yearly recall and, and maybe actually more frequently than that. Certainly during pregnancy, it would be more frequent than that. So we know that there are these groups, okay? Um, I think where the debate is, is whether they've got those risk factors right. So 
can we predict who might progress on to sight-threatening eye condition before um, the two-year period, if you see what I mean? So who should yeah. be on the at least yearly recall? And I think there's a little bit of debate around that, um, but we have a very robust service in the UK. And I think if you are worried about whether you're on the right risk level, then you should be talking to your GP mm -hmm. or your diabetic nurse and they will put your mind at rest. Okay. Um, so where does this, uh, where does this correlation uh, between the diabetes and uh, your vision uh, come from. Uh, yeah, so does being diabetic mean you will uh, it will affect your eyes? Yeah, so it doesn't automatically is, is the answer to that. So not everyone, by a long way, not everyone with diabetes will have eye, eye problems. Um, but we do know that, um, so diabetes is a, is a condition that affects the structure of blood vessels. So the back of the eye is, is, it has lots of little tiny blood vessels that supply nutrients to the retina to keep your eye healthy and working well. And what happens is in diabetes, where the diabetes is isn't well controlled um, the blood vessels become either blocked or distorted and they become leaky and then the, the retina starts to grow new blood vessels and they become even more leakier and you get bleeding on the back of the eye and that bleeding causes damage it causes loss of nutrients to the retina and ultimately if you just left it and you didn't do anything with it it would actually cause the retina to come away so um, the, the worst case scenario is, is that it causes permanent sight loss. However, we do know the very early signs of it. So we can treat it as long as you're having your retinal screening and as long as you're going for your eye tests at the opticians when you're called by the optician. So the optician will be checking your eyes and that's just as important as having the diabetic retinal screening. And I think probably the overall message here is that if you are noticing any change in your vision at all, you should go to the opticians and ask them to check your eyes. Um, that's really important. And that if you have any doubts about your, the control of your diabetes, that you talk to your diabetic nurse or your GP to make sure that um, you're getting all the support you need to control the diabetes because the two, as I say, they're linked. If your diabetes isn't well controlled, then you are more at risk of the retinal changes that we're talking about. Um, and the, as I say, the good news is that diabetic retinopathy can be treated and in some cases it can be prevented. If you, you know, if you have good control of your diabetes and you follow all the advice that your uh, GP and diabetic nurse are giving you, then you should minimize, you should be able to minimize your risks of, of any complications. Very interesting. So um, <clears throat> what's, the, what's the initial symptoms? Uh, one one thing you mentioned was that uh, if your sight is uh, deterring, in, 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 in any case, you should go to the opticians. Absolutely. Uh, is there anything else you should look out for? Yeah, so um, any change in, um, so if you see any distortion in the center of your vision, so if line, straight lines start to look wiggly or distorted, um, that's, that's a sign that something could be changing. If you see, if there's a, leak, a blood vessel leak inside the eye, often you get little brown floaters. 
any floaters that are new so that's like sort of little shadows or you know sort of black black or, bl- or brown specks in your vision floating around um, if they come on suddenly they should be checked if they've been there for a long time and your optician knows about them you don't need to worry about those but new floating bits in your vision you should get checked on the same day so don't ignore that mm-hmm. all right um, and then um, can you share how this condition uh, can alter the vision on an everyday basis um, yeah well um, obviously it will um, kind of decrease your strength of the eyesight uh, but to what extent uh, what what can we um, expect. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. Um, actually, for the vast majority of people, they they don't have any problems with their sight from diabetes. But if you do develop diabetic retinopathy, um, to the point that it needs treatment, uh, and as I mentioned before, you get you have laser treatment, and there's little tiny laser um, uh, treatment spots all across the the sort of edge of the retina which means that it affects your night vision so you don't see so well in the dark Um, and it also causes a a slight loss of your side vision so you don't have such a wide field of view Um, so you might miss things at the edge of your vision. Now if it then affects the middle of your vision that's called diabetic macular edema when it affects the middle part of the eye then everything in the centre becomes distorted so everything a bit wiggly and 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 distorted um and you may find that you get sort of a black blodges in the center of your vision um which means that you can't read small print and detail um and you might find that colors don't look the same as they should do um and then if it does progress on you can end up with retinal detachments which means that you will lose um bits of, of peripheral and central vision um but like i say if you are going for your regular checkups, it won't get to that point. Um, it Usually they can control it either through controlling your diabetes or by progressing on to the various different treatment options that they have for it. Um, so, so it is one of the eye conditions that we can do something about as long as we know soon enough. And is there any um, age factor? Yeah, so it's... Yeah, it's probably more likely to be, uh, the, the disease more likely to catch the older people, right? Yeah, so um, as you get older, you get a higher risk of developing diabetes, for sure. Um, your lifestyle has a lot to do with it, too. As you get older, um, you're more likely to have diabetes. Um, and the, uh, the longer you live with diabetes, the more likely you are to have changes at the back of the eye. So if you've had diabetes for 30, 40 years, you're almost certainly going to have some evidence of diabetic change at the back uh-huh. of the eye. That's not sight-threatening. It's just a, a natural progression. Um, but obviously, if that gets left and your diabetes isn't well controlled, then your eye condition is likely to progress. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, yeah, thank you, Dr. Uh, now, uh, let's, let's come over to you. Uh, tell us a bit about the RNIB. Um, what, what is this about and uh, uh, what is your role in this uh, organization? Yeah, so RNIB um, stands for 
National Institute of Blind. And um, basically, we're an organisation that is there to support anyone who has an eye condition, even if they don't have sight loss, if they just have questions about their eye condition or they're not sure about treatment that they're being offered, we can offer support at that point. Um, But we also offer lots of support for people who are living with sight loss. So if your eye condition does progress on to a situation where you are struggling with things um, that you have to do day to day, then then you're not alone. We have lots of advisors, support and services that can help you. Um, We have um, a team of eye eye care liaison officers that are based within many hospitals in the UK. Um, And you can meet them face to face and they can talk to you all about the different services and support that you can get so through through from things through from emotional support right through to benefits um, and and practical ideas and then um, within the organization we have a UK-wide telephone helpline um, with advisors in all sorts of different aspects of um, day-to-day life and support for people with sight loss we also have a team of counselors so it's natural if if your eye condition progresses that you you may well feel um, depressed or or down or anxious Mm -hmm. about what's happening Um, and there's lots of support that we can offer around that so that you don't feel alone and then we've got lots of peer support groups so um, it really helps to talk to other people who have sight loss um, and we can arrange for that to happen as well and then we have, beyond that, we ha- we campaign on behalf of people with sight loss. Um, big, you know, campaigns about um, changes in society that um, will make life easier for people with sight loss. Um, so I don't know if you saw recently there was a campaign about um, uh, the. Uh, ticket offices in stations closing um, this will this would have significantly caused problems for people with sight loss and um, mm-hmm. and the decision was overturned because of the campaign so that's the sort of thing we do my mm-hmm. role in the organization is I'm the clinical lead for optometry and eye health um, so I advise um, the team on all aspects of eye care and eye health we write booklets we've got lots of booklets about different eye conditions and um, that are free of charge you just just go onto our website or give our helpline a, a call and we can send those out to you um, and I help with the training so we go to um, um, medical professionals and we offer training in sight loss awareness mm, that's really good okay and uh, lastly just a quick one um, how can our listeners if anyone wants to contribute or support you uh, what's the best way Oh, yeah, so on IB, we rely on volunteers and donations. Um, if you go onto our website, um, you can uh, see volunteering opportunities, you can see how to donate to the organisation, and you can read about all our campaigns, um, or call our helpline, which is 0303. Uh, 123-9999 so that's 0303-123-9999 the current the current big campaign is our joy maker campaign um children at christmas time um who uh want to get their their santa letters 
transcribed into their preferred format, so Braille or large print, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. you can help by becoming a joy maker to help that happen for so children don't miss out on, on Christmas. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Liz. It was a pleasure speaking. Uh- right, so that was Dr. Louise Sko, uh speaking earlier with uh, Imam Usman Menon about um, uh, this uh, this degenerative condition called diabetic retinopathy. Yes, I did get that right, finally. Um, right, so... Um, we're coming towards uh, the uh, the close of this topic, and uh, as we always do, we uh, we try to explain things uh, from from an Islamic perspective. So, I guess one question that immediately gentlemen comes to uh, to mind is the importance of health. Uh, they do say now um, that you know a healthy body leads to a healthy mind. And I think that's that's a philosophy that was uh, explained over a hundred years ago by the promised Messiah, uh, may peace be on him, um, uh, in his book, uh, the philosophy of the teaching of Islam as well. So, um, so I guess that that it would be important to sort of talk about what, uh, you know, what is number one the connection and how important is uh, is both keeping yourself fit as well as the re- the importance of uh, doing scientific research in Islam. So, you know, a few questions to, to throw it to uh, mm. you two gentlemen. Over to you. Uh, yes, the, the the book you're mentioning, or um, the Promised Messiah, uh, peace be upon him, in general has uh, mentioned this topic uh, many times. Mm. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because if if um, you're not familiar, the Promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, who's, who's the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, he was uh, born in India. Mm. And at that time, uh, because th- th- they were very closely in contact with the Hindu culture, with the Hindu religion, and Hindus have this concept of um, you know not eating uh, cow meat and to maybe some vegetarian uh, mm. concepts as well. So that's in that regard, the Promised Messiah was talking about this that uh, the the body. First of all, it needs nutrition. It needs a balanced diet, balanced diet which yeah. is, I mean, widely proven today. Mm. Uh, there is no debate about this. You need a balanced diet. Um, but uh, he was the reason he was mentioning uh, these things is that uh, if, if, uh, for example, uh, if a vegetarian only eats plants, doesn't eat any meat. If you look at it from the outside, yes, you are getting your proteins, your um, plant-based protein, your your. Um, Fibers, your your da- dairy products, everything, but there is there is something in in meat that plant can't give you, mm. and that that is what affects your soul. Now this is sounds might sound a little uh, a bit uh, you know crazy. So it affects for some your people. body first, and then you know whatever happens in your body has a connection yeah. with your with your soul. Yeah. For example, he mentioned that a person who eats plants only, mm. you will find some traits of. Um, uh, uh, cowardice and you know being scared in him mm. even though he might be a tough person but mm. you will find an element of cowardice in him because uh, people who eat meat or even animals who eat meat mm. you see them they're very vicious they're very angry so yeah I think the example that he gives is, is that of a lion um, exactly in, yeah. in, in, in that book as well that a lion eats meat and, and therefore it uh, it has uh, uh, you know those uh, a very yeah, so I mean everything humans have is from nature yeah. we copied nature as well but so if we should look at the nature I mean all animals which are meat eaters yeah. they, t- they have a certain kind of trait you know they're very angry they're very vicious they're very sure. aggressive plant eaters are very defensive so from that he uh, not from this only but this is yeah. and one example he gave and he linked the your your physical food to your 
spiritual um, behavior as well. So in that sense, having a balanced diet mm. in Islam is very important. So, so, so what about uh, Imam Bhatti, what, what about this linkage between then uh, uh, the body and uh, and soul in terms of keeping yourself fit? You you are a, a sportsman yourself. Am I? <laughs> uh, um, and uh, how? What sort of role does that play in your own life? I mean, how how do you find that? Um, uh, do you find that therapeutic? Do, do, do I, I reckon? Um, oh, I wouldn't say in my, in my own life to be able to have a physical well built body or even built or to be able to do things in the perspective of um a worship right to be mm-hmm. able to worship properly to be able to carry out actions and deeds um commanded by Allah the almighty you need to have a physical body mm-hmm. right of course and it does link to your soul for you in order to you for you to do those good deeds that God almighty has commanded in the holy quran mm-hmm. You need to have a physical body to do those. I'm not neglecting the part if you are, of course, physically ill, you're not able to do, but you do still receive those blessings. Mm. Um, so it, of course, has an impact for me to, you know, there's a hadith, if you walk towards the mosque and spread your blessings and spread your salutations to your neighbors, you give blessings for that as well. Mm. For, to, to, to be able to do that, you need to have a physical body, right? To be able to be healthy. Um, and especially if you have a healthy mind, increases your spirituality as well um, in regards to that. One thing I would like to mention as we were talking about the NHS beforehand, which is an established government body in our today's society uh, in the UK, that body of the government was already established in the sense at the time of Holy Prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where he thought of a system which is called the Bet al-Mal, which is treasury, for example, yeah. which was established at the time of the second caliph after the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, Hazrat Umar, is where taxes were given, collected ideally, from all the people living around. Mm. And those taxes were used to provide for the poor, disabled, elderly, right. people, orphans and widows. And we can see that from NHS at the same so, time. So essentially a concept of the welfare state. Exactly. And that was around 15. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you can see that Islam does have the solution to everything, mm. which was established 14, 1500 years ago, right. which as people think is a westernized you know, um, yeah. idea, but it's, it was established way before that. Mm. And that system, we can see it's all over the world. Mm. Right, and um, so l- let me put another question to you, which is uh, which is about uh, research and about science and scientific progress, and uh, you know that is another criticism that is often uh, leveled against Islam's and Islam and Muslims in general. That uh, you know Muslims uh, don't progress much in in science. Is is that because of religion? Is there, is there anything that Islam says? Um, I, th- I think if you do look at the history of the East and Islam. Most of Eastern medicine has derived from Western, uh, um, Western medicine has taken benefits from it. Mm. All the roots of uh, the medicinal herbs, etc., that we are using today's, you know, um, hospital, etc., is from Islamic scientific discoveries. Mm. Um, people are not aware of it due to the fact that maybe it's their lack of research or whatever it is. Um, Islam does teach us, you know, um, of course, the best form of cure is press. But where God Almighty has given you the, um, you know, has given the provisions for medicine, you should take it. Because if you're not, you're mm-hmm. neglecting the blessings of God Almighty in the first place. Um, that aspect, 
of where we just rely on medicine. We've seen so many diseases that come and go where medicine is no help, mm. um, plagues, etc. The only help that you can get is through prayers. And um, like Kusmansa was mentioning before in our news, that you know um, we can do whatever we can regarding the Gaza or the wars that are going on. Mm. His Holiness has mentioned time and time again his prayers that is the best form of uh, a cure or a way of peace during mm. these times of war. That's the same with medicine, diseases, or anything is. Um, that's the thing. So, yeah. so w- what is the Islamic teaching around acquiring knowledge? Is that is that something which is promoted in Islam? Of course it is. Of course it is. Um, in a hadith, it does come about wherever you can go, even if you have to go to China or anywhere, to, to acknowledge, um, to um, gain knowledge to go. You shouldn't limit yourself, mm-hmm. right? That knowledge can help anywhere. So research, etc. We know scientific discoveries, um, you know, um, were, deri- were were indeed coming from Islamic scholars, mathematics, scientists, etc. The computers we use today, um, based on you know the code of zero and one, is based from uh, Islamic scholars, etc. So of course mm-hmm. that that's a proven fact that Islam does teach you to go and acquire knowledge out there. Right, yeah. I, I'm re- reminded of, uh, of again, a hadith, a tradition of the Holy Prophet that knowledge is the lost property of uh, of a believer. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I fully agree with you that this is actually acquiring knowledge and research is something which is actually very much promoted in Islam. And unfortunately, Muslims in general have uh, have lost sight of that, uh, That which is why we see that uh, there is not much uh, <coughs> advancement. But within the Amdi Muslim community, there is huge emphasis on yeah. acquiring knowledge. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, we've had a Nobel laureate within, within our community, Dr. Abdus Salam, who... Um, came up with the unification theory and won the Nobel Prize for uh, for physics. Right, okay. Uh, let's conclude that uh, with those, uh, this segment with um, uh, those words and move swiftly on to our second segment, which is about bullying in the work uh, workplace. So, um, uh, Imam Anand, would, would you like to introduce this topic? This is obviously the um, anti-bullying week. Um, so, yeah, what are, what are we discussing? Today? Yeah, as mentioned also in the, at the start of the show, the, today marks the, the, the first day uh, you know, the, of anti-bullying week. And um, uh, in this segment, we will discuss about bullying in the society as well as uh, different workplaces um, also around the world. Um, And uh, this article from uh, BBC, what we are basing this off is uh, it discusses claims of bullying in the film and TV production uh, in, in Wales. And the creative industry, which was investigated by a committee, was told that verbal abuse was very common. Um, and that uh, not many knew the roots to raise any concerns. Uh, many people don't know how to deal with bullying. Many people don't even realize mm. um, that they are a, a victim of, uh, of, of uh, you know, being bullied. And so we will look into how much of an issue bullying is today uh, in, uh, in different, uh, also in different age groups and uh, different societies. Um, and that's what Anti-Bullying Week is about. Right. So, uh, <clears throat> let me ask you before we go on to our, our, our first guest: Have you experienced bullying in 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 your life, and maybe in your early lives in in school? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think everybody has experienced bullying. Uh, it, it depends how you have reacted to it. Um, so, personally, I've, I'm I'm not a very 
you can say vocal or um, you know offensive person so if I was bullied of I mean I would if I think back I, I don't know which which um, as I mentioned you know, a, lot of some, a lot of people don't know they are being bullied yeah. so if uh, maybe I was being bullied and I don't know about it or maybe that was just I was being bullied and I just ignored it uh, but there were cases as well where I was being bullied and I, I reacted to it um, sometimes in a n- negative way mm. but uh, yeah I think everyone I reckon, I reckon even the person who's doing the bullying even he has doesn't, doesn't realise that he's actually bullying mm, yeah, someone because yeah. he probably Absolutely. thinks it's out of a habit or mm. or the yeah, environment a lot, of, a lot of bullies they bully because they have been bullied. exactly I mean th- this is what they know no it, that's like I said is the environment that's around them that's impacting them in the way they react or sure. the way they action themselves everyone's gone through school I'm pretty sure everyone's gone through bullying in one way or another one way or the other yeah absolutely Um, right let's now go to our first guest uh, for this segment uh, Linda James who is a mother of three sons uh, and founded Bullies Out in May 2006 spurred by a determination that the lives of children would not be scarred by bullying as hers had been Aslanikum peace be with you very more welcome to the breakfast show Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Linda. So, so firstly, tell us maybe if if you if you can and if you'd like to about your ex- experience as as somebody who was bullied. Yeah, I, I was bullied um, from about the age of eleven um, at school. Uh, it, it was really nasty, and uh, back then, that you know, we're talking of oh gosh, over fifty years ago now, and um, it, it wasn't really recognised. In, mm. in school at all uh, you really just had to get on with it um, and it happened relentlessly every single day and it affected me because I became very withdrawn and I did develop um, an eating disorder mm. and that stayed with me for a very very long time um, and it impacted on my academic ability as well and you know so it, it was all very negative um, and so you know, my younger son was also badly bullied at school and he was put in hospital. And it was after that that I decided that we needed more help and support uh, for parents, for young people. And that's why I set up the charity because I just didn't want young people to go through what I went through and for parents to struggle the way I struggled for help and support as well. Sure. So would you agree uh, with what we were talking about earlier that those who actually bully are are, are bullied themselves as well and, and, and it's just their reaction to their circumstances? Most of the time it is, yes. Yeah, it is. That, you know, this is why everybody in, in a bullying incident needs help and support. Mm. We, we can't mm. sort of push those displaying the behaviour away we have to find out what is going on in their lives. Otherwise, we'll never break that cycle. Mm. Uh, yes, Linda, I really like the, the the reaction you had. Um, uh, instead of, you know, a lot of people, their reaction to bullying is that they, they will start bullying others. Some people will uh, uh, have, um, you know, they move back or they, they become, um, they uh, get a certain other um, conditions but I really like that you started this scheme and you stepped up and realized that uh, um, somebody has to you know help these people and also the, the, the statement you just made that um, you know even bullies need help um, so I think this is a really uh, good way of um, 
good reaction to uh, bullying rather than uh, have always having a nav- negative impact and negative uh, thinking that bullies should be punished or this and that. So tell us a bit about Bullies Out. Um, what do you offer here and what do you um, uh, do? Our main, our main vision is to empower uh, and inspire children, young people and adults to overcome bullying behaviour, recognise their self-worth and achieve their full potential. And that can be any any person involved in a bullying incident. Um, and we do that through delivering workshops, training programmes, we provide mentoring and counselling services, we run youth engagement programmes, um, and we work with, like I said, anybody within that incident um, because we want to provide uh, we, so our workshops cover we have 13 14 workshops and they they cover a whole range of anti-bullying kindness and well-being themes and it's to help young people recognize their own behaviors feelings we challenge we most certainly challenge we challenge their their, their sort of talk, their communications, why they feel the way they feel, and with those who are displaying the behaviour, again, we want to find out what is going on and what is happening, so then the right support can be put in place for each individual person, and that way, hopefully, um, the incidents will stop, they can be prevented, um, and, you know, we're, we're never going to stop it completely. Hmm. But if it can be reduced and if people can receive the help and support a lot faster and not suffer for longer, then that's got to be a positive. Linda, how would you define bullying? Uh, for us, bullying is is something that is constant. It's not a one-off incident. It's something that happens over and over and over again. Um, so we mustn't confuse bullying with an incident of conflict. So when you know somebody might have a disagreement over something, um, a slight falling out, that happens to us all. It just happens constantly. It's usually one person on one person or a few people attacking another person. And it makes that individual just feel absolutely powerless that they can't do anything about it they don't know which way to turn and that's that's why we mustn't there's, there's sort of three we have to look at it in three ways so we have the incident of conflict where we can deal with that you know we can get on with our lives we can deal with it we have a slight falling out and we can deal with it and then we have bullying which is that relentless attack day in day out but then of course it can go on then to be abuse so when we see these gangs of 15, 20 young people attacking one person, that isn't bullying. Mm. That's abuse. That's bodily, grievous bodily harm, actual bodily harm. So that, that's taking it another level. So we, we mustn't then um, confuse that with bullying. You know, that's taken further. So we've got all these different levels and we mustn't confuse you know one with the other because each one needs a different level of support and of course some of them may need involvement from the police um thank you for that linda my question to you is that um 
you know, bullying, I think, has evolved over the past, I'd say, 20 years or so. Um, I've been through a different era where bullying was due to different, you know, um, environments, etc. Um, I think, to be honest, it's a two-in-one question. What difference is it now compared to, I would say, 10, 15 years ago um, where bullying has changed? What are the aspects of where people are being bullied on and... Uh, um, do you reckon it's less now? Maybe due to the, you know, the, the, um, I would say the culture um, in the UK or generally. Uh, no, no, it, 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 it certainly isn't less. Um, we have more ways to bully now with with social media and game insights. So we definitely have more ways to bully. Mm-hmm. And if somebody is bullied at school, it can carry on online and vice versa, and. With young people, um, you know, so many of them now, in fact, most of them have access to a, a mobile phone, which have access to the internet. So they're literally, those who are being bullied, they, they can be carrying a, that bully in their pocket. You know, they don't turn their phones off. So years ago, we would go home and your bully couldn't attack you. Today they can. So they, you're in your own you know, your own space, your private space at home and in your room, and you can still be bullied, whereas that couldn't happen before mobile phones. So there's more ways to bully. On the plus side, with the internet, we have more awareness of bullying. Um, so more people are aware that it's happening and we can do more about it. Um, but it, it doesn't stop, you know, the young person from being like I said, bullied in their own personal space so they can't get away from it. Um, because, you know, they don't like turning their phones off. We know that. Um, they don't like putting them away. Um, so it's, it's yeah, it, it's it's a tough one um, because they can be, like I said, they can be bullied 24-7. Definitely. Um, so how can we, you know, like you said, with social media, etc., the, the bullying has increased. Um, but I reckon the awareness of... Um, helping those people who are bullied has increased as well. Then, it, it, you know what? It, it comes. We we have to empower young people yeah. to deal with this, and it does start in the home. Um, we we have to. Our, our, you know, we we want sort of generations of young people that are confident and that they're happy with themselves. Unfortunately, the internet also gives us a, a fake view of how we should be how we should look you know what we should be doing um and, and we have to educate young people to understand that that is fake that you know we don't need to look like you know these these people that they're putting up we don't need filters we are who we are and we we need to help them understand and to feel happy with who they are and to be confident with with who they are they don't need to add filters in it. They don't need to look like a certain way. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, a lot of that is, is education. A lot of it is support. Um, but if we're giving them access to the internet and we're giving them these mobile phones, then we also need to teach them to use them respectfully and respons- responsibly and to be kind, a kind human being. Kindness costs nothing. You know, you don't have to make nasty comments online. You don't have to, you know, like or share the nasty comments just because you you know the person that has put it up. 
It's literally, you can step away from it online just as you can step away from it in the offline world. And that's what we have to keep education, educating our young people to do. Just literally step away from it. Just be yourself, be that kind citizen that doesn't want to get involved in anything. You, men- you mentioned education. Um, so yeah. going to the schools, um, how can the schools be better equipped with the bullying? Um, again, you know, it's the same for them. They can make sure that they raise awareness of it constantly. You know, for us, anti-bullying week is never enough. Yeah. You know, I think there should be an anti-bullying day every week. Um, it's just about raising awareness again, you know, whether they deliver the sessions themselves or whether they bring an outside agency in. It, it, it's really getting home about being a decent, kind human being. Um, and, you know, it, in some schools, they, they're not allowed to have their mobile phones and that, you know, during, during school time, and that's a great thing. Um, in, in others, then, you know, that, that's, not, um, that's not the same thing. They, they, they are allowed their phones. Um, and bullying then can go on during school time. But it, it's about monitoring them, monitoring their behaviour. It's about dealing with the behaviour as fast as they possibly can. Um, and making sure that they provide the relevant support to everybody involved, including the parents as well. Um, It's a tough one because, you know, there's a lot of people in the schools and um, despite what we think, teachers don't have eyes in the back of their heads. You know, know, when I was a child, I thought they did, but they they don't. And so, you know, it's hard. It's hard for schools today. It really is hard for schools today. Um, and this is why we try and support them as much as we possibly can. Uh, Excellent. Thank you very, very much, Linda, for joining us this morning. Uh, that was very insightful. Really enjoyed talking to you. Have a lovely you. day and rest of the week. Thank you. Peace be with you. So that was Linda James, uh, who is uh, the founder of Bullies Out. Let me go now straight to our last guest of um, the morning, who is Rebecca Hipkiss. And Rebecca is a child line supervisor at NSBCC. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Rebecca. So um, tell us a little bit uh, about uh, what does child line, what sort of services uh, or or support does child line offer? Childline is essentially a listening service. We are a safe space for young people to explore how they're feeling and to maybe speak to an adult who is impartial and who can step back from the situation and help them look at what options that they have. Mm -hmm. And uh, what kind of um, calls do you get, um, if you can give some examples? So in the last year, I think we had 8,000 contacts uh, around bullying, <clears throat> about seven thousand of those were bullying in person. Uh, about a thousand of those were about bullying online. Mm-hmm. I think one of the key things uh, about a young person who's being bullied is it makes them feel very isolated, uh, and they sometimes just to share what's going on for them can be really, really helpful. They sometimes have concerns about sharing with parents because they don't want to worry their parents. Uh, they have concerns about sharing with teachers because things sometimes get worse in school uh, mm-hmm. rather than better immediately. But I think it's about basically encouraging them to share with somebody what's going on with them. So the first step is not to feel quite so alone. 
Yeah, so I assume this is what parents should be looking out then. Um, isn't that like, not symptoms, but um, one of the f- first um, initial stages of bullying, uh, I think, uh, would be isolation. Yes, it's, it's about not wanting to perhaps go to school, not not wanting to do things that they've possibly done before, um, having concerns around advice if they are um, being bullied online. Mm. You know, there's quite a selection of ways that it can happen. And I think for parents, it's just being aware of changes that might possibly happen. Your child becomes more anxious. They start to act slightly out of character, slightly angrily. Um, they become nervous. They don't do as well at school. It was, you know, quite a selection of things that that, that parents could, could be aware of and could be looking out for. Mm. And how do you think the parents should approach the child? Um, I mean, should they blatantly ask? I mean, are you being bullied or is there anything wrong at school? Uh, what would be the best approach? I think it's about remaining calm. Don't overwhelm them with questions. Mm. Um, I think it's about letting them know that you are there for them, but that you're not so worried that they don't feel they can share with you. Um, I think that, for example, if they're being bullied online, it's not necessarily that helpful to say, well, just never go on your device, because that Mm -hmm. may be ways that they're accessing other kinds of support, but it may be to suggest that they limit or spend less time on certain platforms. Um, they can block messages online from um, anyone that is is, is bullying them. Um, but then there's also other things. Young people feel bullied when they're left out, when they're ignored. So I think that there's a, a real spectrum of ways that it can happen. But the most important thing is the impact that it has on the young person. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in, in your helpline, um, do you... Um have any statistics which uh, which can tell you whether there's more boys or girls being bullied or if there's more boys or girls which are bullies or which report uh, these kind of um, incidences I'm not, I'm not sure on the actual statistics of, of boys versus girls mm-hmm. uh, and I think um, that that can also change depending on the demographics of young people that we've got calling us in general mm-hmm. but I think it happens to everybody and I think that sometimes some people get the advice of just ignore it and that's not always that helpful I think it's more helpful for them to talk about and explain the impact that it's having on them Mm -hmm. so how do you deal with a caller Um, for example um, I call and I reported that I have been bullied or uh, my child has been bullied so what's what kind of steps do you take to um, help them Well, in terms of the people that we talk to, we just talk to young people up to the age of 19. Mm. Um, One of the things that we have at Childline is a website where there is a message board where other young people explore and exchange experiences, which means that, again, we can encourage a young person to have a look at that so that they don't feel alone. We can talk to them about what they feel their options are. We are not an advice-giving service, so we wouldn't be saying you need to do this, you need to do that. Okay. But we will be exploring the child's world and finding who they feel comfortable to speak to and maybe getting them to think about what that process might be like. Yeah, and uh, uh, you said you speak for to children up to 19. Do, do you speak to parents as well? Or is, that, is this only no, for children? Parents. Um, there is a NSPCC helpline, which is for adults. Mm-hmm. We are um, just for young people. Okay. Interesting. But my question to you is, um, Rebecca, that, you know, in today's new age of technology, etc., we were speaking to Ms. Linda before, um, it's very difficult to um, ensure the safety of the children regarding cyberbullying. 
Um, do you have any advice for any listener out there where they can ensure the safety of their children on social media platforms or online learning environments? Well, I think I would say that it's mostly about communication so that parents are aware uh, of what platforms children are accessing, how much time they spend on their device, uh, but also what is actually going on in their child's world, what is going on in their child's life. So that if you have those channels of communication that are open, a young person feels able to confide in their parents if things um, are difficult or that they're struggling. And I think it's important that parents are interested in their child's world without necessarily being dismissive of new trends and, and, and the way that young people use their devices. I think that parents need to be open to be supportive. Right. Thank you very, very much, uh, Rebecca Hibkes, for joining us. This was uh, really insightful, uh, uh, excellent work that you're doing. All the all the best wishes from us uh, for uh, the great work that you're doing. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Have a lovely day and the rest of the Thank week. Um, and peace be with you. So that was uh, Ms. Rebecca Hipkis, who is Jailine Supervisor at NSBCC. Right, gentlemen. So... <coughs> Let's uh, uh, talk about um, the importance of, um, uh, you know, maybe just enlarge the topic and, and talk about uh, moral reformation mm-hmm. and uh, and the importance of being kind and being helpful to others and um, being as far as away as possible from from bullying in Islam. So what what? I guess uh, let me pose a rather fundamental question to you, and if I come come to you, Imam um, Imam Bhatti first, what um, uh, is the Islamic teaching um, around um, uh, around moral reformation, and how important is it in Islam uh, that one actually assumes uh, or, or takes into account moral reformation? I think um, it's important to note. That Islam, like any major religion, promotes values of compassion, kindness, and respect for each other. Um, Islam tells followers, tells its followers to treat people of all um, culture, religion, Kalakala race, um, with empathy and fairness. So, coming back to the anti-bullying week, of course, bullying, um, you know, promotes you know harassment and uh, um, belittling someone. Um, the perfect way to um, I will summarize or perfect way to look at it, the Holy Quran, which has um, you know been revealed to us by God Almighty through the Holy Prophet wasallam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, in, in chapter 49, it mentions, O you who believed, let not a people ridicule, 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 ridicule another people, perhaps they may be better than them. Um, this verse emphasizes not belittling others and suggests that they may be better than you in the sight of Allah, whether they're Muslim or not. Um, so this, this verse encourages speaking that which is best avoiding discord, uh, which can be associated with bullying and mistreatment. This verse shows us Muslims that no matter what race, color or culture you are, you shouldn't belittle anyone, and I think this goes perfect with the anti-bullying week, um, mm. which uh, the topic is for today. Yeah, I think if we go back to what uh, also the guests were mentioning a lot, uh, a lot about parents and how they can help, uh, um, and I think uh, the perfect example that Islam presents is that um, uh, the example of the parents themselves needs to be 
um, you know, exceptional. Uh, they need to have an, a relationship with a child where the child can approach them without any fear. Yeah. And uh, that can only happen if you're, you're not friends with your child. You know, how, how great would you feel? I mean, I'm, uh, as a parent, I'm not a parent yet, but how would you feel if, you, if your child says that you're my best friend? Mm-hmm. That was, I assume, <laughs> I'm sure it's, it's like a really great feeling. That I have a niece saying, yes. and uh, I'm her best friend. Uh, officially and uh, it feels really nice and then she she can you know if she wants to play she'll come to me if she needs anything she'll come to me and I feel like I'm, I'm available I'm always available and I really um, it's just a really um, I think I'm doing a good job that I am available for her just be in simple words so and bullying is um, the first thing you will notice is that children feel isolated so you need to approach them you need to show them that I am available um, but if parents are very strict, for example, um, if if the child does one thing wrong and they, you know, they they give them a punishment or they're very harsh on them about um, something small or even if it's a big thing, mm. but the response or the 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 thing that will log into their mind is that oh, if I do this something bad, my dad will be angry, and mm. then if I go to him, it will get worse. So his uh, his thinking will be oh, I better stay away, or maybe I'll go to my mother, or maybe I won't go to my mother. I go to my um, father so parents have to you know sit together and discuss these things and uh, make sure that they remind each other that if a child does something wrong he, he doesn't know he doesn't have the knowledge he doesn't mm. he's, a, he's a child I mean uh, being angry or showing uh, any harshness towards a child is, is never good in any case because they don't deserve it they, it's not their fault uh, if a child does something repeatedly wrong um, you should admonish them you should explain to them and I mean, if if you show a good example, your child most likely won't do anything wrong. He'll follow you. But if something does go wrong, then you need to show them by example again that, look, do this, do how I, I do. Um, instead of stealing things, we pay for things, okay? And instead of lying to people, we tell them the truth. Even if it, uh, even if it um, backfires or hurts us in, the, in a little bit, in the long run, it will help us. So showing that example mm. and another important thing which um, I've mentioned also earlier on uh, other shows is that um, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed may Allah be pleased with him he's written a book and he's mentioned some points about uh, upbringing of children and one point which is very interesting he mentioned is that um, parents should choose the friends of, of their children mm. And that's uh, at first it sounds like you're enforcing something on them, but uh, you know, when your child wants chocolate, do you always give him chocolate? Mm. No, you don't. You give him healthy snacks, uh, fruits, milk. So in the same way, friends are very friends can be very dangerous if, if they're bad friends. Mm. So parents have to make sure they choose the right friends for their child. Um, some are, you know, good friends. Some are rather they have, they have a bad company or mm. they they are bullies sure. even if they don't uh, mean it but yeah. again this is the the role of the parents are very is very important in, in, the, in this topic we are discussing sure absolutely uh, it goes without saying 100% thank you very very much uh, uh, for that uh, Imam Usman Manan thank you very much uh, uh, also to Imam Nabil Patti uh, that brings us towards the end of the show today I must thank a producer Faiza Chima Saiba um, our um, trainee producer Benazir Rafiq Saiba uh, as well as um, our lead producer Samab Rahman Saiba researcher Saleh Sadiqa Saira Vijaya and Sabah Zakaria 
um, uh, excellent support as always from the tech room for Mr. Tahir. Uh, thank you very much for joining us um, over the last couple of hours. Uh, we've been talking about uh, NHS and uh, a specific eye condition which is related to diabetes called diabetic retinopathy um, in the first hour. And then we talked about bullying this being the anti-bullying week uh, in the last 45 minutes or so. If you've not been able to listen to the show, you can always go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording. Thank you very much once again for joining us. It was um, um, it was a very insightful show. We had a back show with, um, with a number of guests. Uh, so once again, the recording is available on uh, SoundCloud. We will be back uh, in a week's time. There will be a live show tomorrow morning. There will be a live show actually this afternoon uh, from 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, called the Drive Time Show as well so do join us uh, for those shows until next week assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh may peace and blessings of allah be upon you Voice of Islam Radio.